Let us pray. God, as we reflect upon that marvelous truth that you love the world so much, we think about these young people whom we have seen. I wonder, God, if you don't see us the same way. Sometimes yawning when we're supposed to have our voices right. Sometimes stretching and looking about, sometimes completely enthralled. And yet none of us really understanding the greater message that you have. And together making one sound that is beautiful. So God, as we are distracted in our life by things that keep us from that sound, call us back to the note that you would have us sing. The note of faith and wholeness and trust. The note of complete devotion to Jesus Christ. God, here among us are dear friends who are struggling with illnesses that are, that are just sapping their life energy. There are among us people whose close family is in great difficulty. And we pray for them. There are among us those who are having a problem in their relationships, in their own family. And they don't know how to get out of that difficulty. God, open a way. And among us, God, are those who can't seem to find their way to you. They can't discover you in the folds of life around them. And they're searching for something more. God, would you just tear back the curtain a little bit so they can see you full face. And so, God, in all these concerns and issues, remind us again that all that is really important is that you so loved the world, you so loved us, that you gave your only son. And he prayed so simply and so clearly. And so we echo his prayer as well together as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Yes, it was a fine prayer, Pastor Stewart. <laughs> it's hard not to uh, have your heart warm and your eyes wet when you look up and see all these kids here this morning. Isn't it a blessing? At least second graders, and that's not all of them. There'll be more second service. Thank God for our children's ministries. Thank God for our kids. They're not the church of the future. They are the church of right now, just as much as we are. And we are grateful that they are a part of this church. Okay, let me see where the clipboard is. This is the last Sunday it's going to go around. Raise it up. Make sure it's still moving around. Good. How about over here? I don't see it. Where is the clipboard? Look around you. Find it. If someone's sitting on it, pull it out from underneath them and carry it on. Tremendous response to our prayer ministry last week, and uh, we're going to have a wonderful prayer vigil. A few uh, weeks ago, uh, Cooper and I, my four-year-old boy, 
and I were alone at home. So we decided to do something special that both of us would enjoy a great deal. We went to the Tigger movie. Um, he calls it uh, Tigger Big Screen. And um, I did something at the movie that I've never done ever in a movie before. I fell asleep. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just couldn't. Somehow the excitement of it was, it was really good, but it just didn't, it didn't engage me. Cooper did not fall asleep, however, and I stayed uh, awake long enough to get the gist of the story. Tigger wants his family. He's looking for his family, and, and uh, he, he, he realizes that he's the only one that looks like him. And so he begins to do this search for a family, and his other friends, Pooh and Piglet and the rest, decide that uh, they're going to send him a letter purporting to be from their family because they want him to feel, feel better. So Tigger gets this letter thinking it's from his family. He's so excited he makes plans for a party because he's sure that they're going to show up for this party. And uh, now Pooh and the rest are really up there in a quandary because they've got in, him into this mess. And so they all dress up in Tigger outfits. And they are pretty poor excuses for Tigger outfits, I, I want to tell you. And they show up. Tigger is so enthused at first that he doesn't catch on. But after a while, he becomes a little suspicious. He notices that their Tigger skin is an awfully, lot, uh, awfully wrinkly compared to his Tigger skin. He notices they can't bounce like he does. He notices they don't talk like he does. And pretty soon, Tigger catches on, and he pulls the hood off of, of Pooh, and he is so hurt that these imposters would pretend to be his family when they are in fact not, and that he heads off into the snow to, to find his family. And then I fell asleep, and I can't tell you the rest of the story. <laughs> Last week, we met the dragon's allies. Remember, the dragon is Satan, and he is... On a warpath, he tried to kill the Messiah child and failed. He tried and failed to kill the, the mother of the child. He tried to kill the heaven, to de defeat the heaven. At every turn, he has failed. And so he decides to call forth reinforcements. And we met them last week, the, the sea beast and the land beast. And I talked about the sea beast being really the representation of, um, of patriotism that has turned into idolatry. And, the, and, and he was a pretty ferocious-looking animal. You remember? Seven heads, ten horns, ten crowns on his horn. And he's made out of all kinds of animal parts. Leopard and bear and uh, lion. And it's all stitched together in a patchwork job. Pretty intimidating. Uh, but then we met the second beast. And this one wasn't so scary at all. In fact, he was kind of cute. He's a little lamb. He's got two little horns. He's a little lamb. And, and we're drawn to this little lamb, especially because we've been reading the rest of the book of Revelation. And we like lambs. Lamb is a big theme in this book. But it isn't long before we take a look at this lamb a little more closely. The skin doesn't fit quite so tight. And when that little lamb speaks, it is not the bleat of a lamb, but the voice of a dragon. And we discovered that this second beast is in fact just that. He is an imposter. He is not the real thing. And there's no mistake about it once we get a clear look at it because we have seen the real thing. We have seen the real Lamb of God. And the contrast between the genuine article and this counterfeit is very striking. Let us turn to our text for the morning, Revelation chapter 14. Raise up your Bibles if you brought them so I can praise you. Mona brought her Bible that she got when she was in second grade. Raise that up, Mona. That was three or four years ago. Hear the word of God. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like 
the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peal of thunder. The sound that I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They followed the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts truly be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, I want you to think back to last week. You remember the role that the land beast played? I told you that he was something like the minister of propaganda for the sea beast. He, it was his job to promote the sea beast. He made a, sta- a statue of the sea beast. He uh, caused that statue to appear to come to life. And then he forced everyone, young, old, rich, poor, free, and slave, to worship that this uh, statue of the sea beast. And if they did not, they were killed. And the ultimate indignity or dignity, depending upon who you serve, was that he caused a mark to be placed, the mark of this sea beast on the forehead of every person or on the right hand of, of every person. And the mark of this beast, we were told, we ought to figure it out, is the name of the beast. And what was the numerical value of that mark? Six, six, six. I wonder if you see the point that is being made Uh, in the five verses this morning. It is another one of those interludes where we pause. It's not only an interlude, for it causes us to kind of look back and remember some things we've seen before. It also jumps ahead and looks at some things we're going to see near the end of the book when all things finally are consummated. But it is a reminder. It is a reminder of what we have already seen in the book. It is a reminder of who the real Lamb of God is. We met Him in chapter 5. Do you remember? We spent all of Advent in that part of of the book. It was only the Lamb of God, the real Lamb of God, who was worthy to break the seals on the scroll of human destiny. Only He was worthy. And then we see Him again later in chapter 7. After God places His mark on the forehead of every one of His redeemed, they they break into songs of praise to the Lamb. And during that song of praise, He is adored as the Lamb who will become our shepherd. It is an amazing imagery, but who knows better how to shepherd, how to lead sheep than super sheep? I mean, the, the Lamb who has been there and done it all. And so the Lamb becomes our shepherd. We are then, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the Lamb's lambs. We are the, the sheep of His pasture, as Psalm 100 puts it. We are the Lamb's lambs. You may not have been aware of it, but the little girl that did the call to worship earlier today, magnificently, I might add, was my daughter, Rachel. Uh, It has been interesting for us, the difference of opinion between those who look at Rachel and Cooper, in fact, and some of whom say that they see her mommy in her, some of whom say they see me in her, and I I don't know, we'll we'll do a vote right now. What do you think? Those, how many who know Cindy and me think Rachel looks more like Cindy? Raise your hand. How many think that she looks more like me? How many don't have a clue? Okay. I don't have a clue. I look at her. I think she's beautiful, but I don't know who she looks like. I cannot tell. But apparently, there are many of you out there who look and say, Ah, that's Cindy's little girl. That's Mark's little girl. There's something about her, the marks of her, that identify her as being our child. Now, if we are the lamb's lambs, 
We ought to have distinguishing marks. There ought to be things about us that people look at them and say, Ah, they belong to the Lamb. They belong to Jesus. What are they? What are they that others see in us, these marks? What should we see in ourselves, these identifying marks? This morning I want to look at only four traits. There are many of them throughout the Scriptures, but I want to look at four of them this morning. And I want to mention my indebtedness to Pastor Daryl Johnson. He's a pastor down in California, and much of his uh, work has been so helpful uh, for both Rick Murray and me as we have been making our way through uh, the book of Revelation. So here are four traits that I think come out. All of them start with the, word, uh, the letter F. Perhaps that will be helpful. First of all, we are financed. Would you say that? We are financed. And you say, now that is weird. That is an odd thing to say. Why would you use language like that? Because that is exactly what the text says. Verse 3 and verse 4, the word that is used there that sometimes is translated redeemed, the actual word is purchased. We have been bought. We have been financed. Someone paid a price to buy us and we do not belong to ourselves anymore. Parenthetically, we never can be our own person. We are going to be owned by something. It will be either the enemy or the Lord. We are never our own person. It is the great lie of the devil that we can be our own. We will always belong to someone. The question is, whose will we be? We have been financed. A few weeks back while I was in Montgomery, Alabama, I, uh, the, the weather was beautiful. Even in February, it was quite warm. And we drove by cotton fields, and you can imagine an experience for me trying to soak up all of this southern culture, southern history. And to be honest with you, more than once, I could not help but wonder as I looked out across those expansive cotton fields, what it must have been like 150 years ago for black slaves who were toiling under the stifling summer sun. And as I looked at the old homes and the old plantation-type homes, the Capitol building, the stairs where Jefferson Davis, Jeff Davis they call him back there, gave his speech announcing secession, for this was the capital, the original capital of, of the South. It was impossible for me not to think about that horrible institution which precipitated the Civil War, slavery. And more than once as I drove by one of these plantation homes, I found myself trying to imagine what it must have been like to be bought and sold like a piece of property, to watch as your wife and your children were sold before your eyes and wrenched from your arms never to be seen again. Proudly today we declare that we are free. Proudly we declare today that all people, white, black, of any color, all men, all women are created equal in the sight of God. It is the core principle of our existence as a country, ironically. Ah, but there's a deeper truth here for us today. For we who are the lambs know differently. We are not free. We have been purchased. We have been financed. You remember chapter 5 when they were trying to find one who was worthy to break the seals of the scroll? Do you remember that? What was it that finally qualified the line of Judah who was in fact a lamb? What was it that qualified him to be the one who would break open the seals? The answer? Because he had purchased us with his blood. That was what qualified him. Paul puts it this way. You know the passage in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Remember the mark of the beast, 666? We saw it last week. It is a counterfeit. It is the counterfeit mark of the, of the lamb, the genuine mark of the lamb on our forehead and of everyone who belongs to him. And that mark is a mark of ownership. It reminds us that we are no longer ours. We have, we, we gave, when we gave our hearts to Christ, we paid a price that we could never pay. 
a price that we could never pay. We are eternally in his debt. We will forever belong to the one who paid so great a price. My friend, if you truly believe that you are your own person, beholden to no one, there are only two possibilities. You are either ignorant of the transaction you engaged in when you received Christ in your heart, or you have not done so. For if you received Jesus, you were purchased, you were financed, you were bought with the precious price of his blood. That's one of the distinguishing marks of the lambs. We know that we are financed. We are not our own. Secondly, we, we, we are first fruits. Did you see that verse in the text, that word? First fruits. Now, here's another odd expression, but we find it in verse 5. Now, what does it mean? First fruits is a word that describes biblical sacrifice. The first fruit of the harvest was that which sounds just like it was. It was the first gleaning, the first harvesting that was brought in. And the first fruits of the harvest always belonged to whom? Always belonged to God. All of the rest of the harvest we could keep. But the first fruits were offered up to God as a reminder that it came from Him, it belongs to Him, and, and we ought to live a life of graciousness. With the death of Jesus on the cross, the final perfect sacrifice was accomplished. No more harvest uh, first fruit sacrifices, no more slain animals on the altar. Now, I would ask you, does that mean then that we, as saved, redeemed, purchased people in Jesus Christ, does that mean that we don't need to make sacrifices anymore? Tricky question. How many say yes? We do not need to make sacrifice anymore. The sacrifice has been made. How many say yes? Courageous people, the two of you. I'm proud of you for sticking to your convictions. How many say no? How many are not going to answer this question because they know they'll get stuck? (laughs) The answer is no. It does not get easier. It gets tougher. It does not get easier. It gets tougher. In the Old Testament, we offered up our fruits or the grain or the animal. What does the New Testament say that we must offer up? Us! Us, in the Old Testament, we are called to give a tithe, the 10% of what we make, of what God gives to us. In the New Testament, what are we told to give? I hate to break it to you, everything. The New Testament standard for first fruit is everything. Everything belongs to Christ. If He bought us, we are His, and all that we have belongs to Him. We are a sacrifice That's what this text is saying. We ought to live our lives as if we are a sacrifice. You remember that passage in Romans 12? Many of you have memorized it. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do you realize what it is saying? It says you do not get off the hook when you take that lamb, that turtle dove, that bullock, slay it, lay it on the altar and burn it up. You're not covered now for a few months because now God wants you to take your entire self and lay it on the altar of life and say, I entirely am yours. Everything I have, everything I do is yours. Johnson puts it this way, the Lamb's people do not compartmentalize life. They don't say, this is God's, but this is mine. No, no, no. This is God's, this is God's, this is God's, this is God's. Sunday is God's, and so is Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. It is all God's. Quiet time is God's, and so is work time and recreation time and sleep time. The first 10% is God's. I'd be happy if we move all of us in that direction. 
But then he goes on and says, and so is the next 10% and the rest and the rest. The one who belongs to the Lamb says, it is all yours because I am all yours, Lord. One of the marks of the Lamb's lambs is that is the life of first fruits, a life of sacrifice. So we are financed, we are first fruits. Does your life sound like that in all honesty? Does your life sound like that? Third, we are faithful. We are faithful. How many of you knows that puzzling passage about the 144,000 again? How many scratched your head and say, I don't get that? And there's a new twist that's added to this 144,000 that we didn't find back in chapter 7. What is the twist? Virgins, all virgins. The word, interestingly, though it appears to be describing men, is the word that's ordinarily used to describe woman, a young woman, a maiden who is a virgin. It says there that the 144,000 with the mark on their foreheads had not defiled themselves with women but kept themselves pure. I know there are some of you, my brothers and sisters, who believe this to be a literal number, meaning 144,000 Jews, and some of you have expressed that to me. I'm sorry, I do not believe it. And we will continue to graciously grapple on this. Numbers are symbols to John. 144,000 is 12, which is a significant number, times 10, which is a lot, times 10, which is lot, lot, which is 10 times lot, lot, lot. It's a lot of people, and what I still believe that it means, it is the entirety of the redeemed, the body of the redeemed. And as for the virgins, there is no doubt that in the early church, celibacy was valued as a high virtue, as a means of devoting oneself entirely to the service of Christ. Jesus spoke of becoming a eunuch for the sake of the gospel. And Paul said that it was easier if you were single to serve the Lord. You don't have so many distractions, and that certainly would be true. And then there was an early theologian named Origen who took this to a new level. He actually emasculated himself as a sign of his devotion to Christ. Ouch. That would cut down on church membership. (laughs) The problem is, if you take this as a literal view, you fly in the face of every other piece of biblical teaching about sex. The Bible never teaches that sexual relations are defiling, ever. Outside of marriage, yes, but within the marital context where sex was designed, it never teaches that it is defiling. On the contrary, sex is always presented from the second chapter of Genesis on as God's gracious gift. Marital sex is God's gracious and loving gift to humanity. Jesus himself affirmed that a man should leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two should become one flesh. That's sex. That's euphemism. And Paul, whom we quoted earlier, saying it's better to be single, he uses marital sexual union to describe the relationship between Jesus and the church. Do you remember that? In Ephesians chapter 5, 6. So the scriptures never talk about sex as being a defiling act. You must ignore way too much biblical material to take this view of virgin as, as literal. 
It also, my friends, ignores the entire context of the letter. Now think again. What was one of the practices that was occurring in the temples that were dedicated to, edit, uh, to emperor worship? Prostitution, temple prostitution. In fact, in chapter 17, we are going to read of the whore of Babylon. Can't wait for that one, can you? I can't wait to figure out what I'm going to say about it either. <clears throat> Five times in the book of Revelation, John calls idolatry, idol worship, pornography. Five times he calls it pornography. Idol worship is pornography. So the image of illicit sex is used throughout Revelation as a metaphor for idolatrous behavior. Do you understand what I'm saying? It makes perfect sense then that this body of believers who have not bowed their knee to the Roman idols, who have not, if you will, slept with the whore of Babylon, it makes perfect sense that they would be described as virgins. What does it mean? It means that they have saved themselves for marriage to the bridegroom Christ. That is what it means. We're going to meet that bridegroom later on. We've got to read the whole book to understand this. They do not sully themselves with adulterous, idolatrous affairs with other gods. They belong only to Jesus. I think that's what it means. It is too simple, and it's not, it doesn't look at the core of the context of this to simply say, that's 144,000 Jews that are virgins. That's not what it's saying. It is talking about the faithfulness of God's people who will not bow themselves. They will not receive the mark of the beast because they have the mark of the true Christ and God upon their forehead. Put simply, the lambs, lambs are faithful to him. We do not sleep around. We do not toy with other gods. We do not toy with other idols. We belong to him. The other night, Cindy and I had one of those moments that I wish for every couple on a regular basis. We were lying in bed together, talking, laying in bed, talking. And we asked each other why our 12 and a half years of marriage have been so good. We, we love our marriage. We love our relationship. And we just said, so why? Why has it been so good? And we had several suggestions back and forth, but one of the things we said was, we've been faithful to each other. And the thought that the other person might not be faithful has never crossed either of our minds. The lamb's lambs are faithful. Finally, we are followers. We are financed, we are first fruits, we are faithful, and we are followers. Verse 4 makes a simple and powerful statement. What does it say about them? They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Remember back at Christmas time, I, as a way of kind of drawing Revelation and the Christmas story together, I pulled out that nursery rhyme that you know, Mary had a little lamb. Well, we know the rest. Its fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. If you ever travel with me to Israel, you're going to see this nursery rhyme in living color. The shepherds walk along, and the sheep follow them. That is their job. Their job is to just follow the shepherd. The shepherd's job is to take care of them. Their job is just follow the shepherd. That is our job too. We are to follow our lamb. Do you see the theme that really is being cycled through again and again in this short text? We have been financed. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus Christ. We are first fruits. Our whole lives are to be lived in sacrifice to Jesus Christ. We are faithful. Our eyes do not stray. We worship only Jesus Christ. And we are followers. Wherever Jesus goes, we go. Whatever Jesus does, we do. We look at him and do what he does. When he speaks the truth, 
We speak the truth. When he says, care for the poor, we care for the poor. When he says, love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. When Jesus says, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross, your instrument of your own death, and lay it on your shoulder and follow me. That is the price. And that is exactly what we do. We follow the Lamb. These are just some of the distinguishing marks of the Lamb's lambs. Now, let me ask you an honest question. Do you feel intimidated? When you read this, do you feel intimidated? Do you, do you say, mm, do I really live my life as sacrifice? Am I really that faithful? Do I really live a life of complete fidelity to the Lord? And, of course, every one of us says no. We cannot possibly fulfill the demands perfectly. And thank God, and here is the heart of the gospel, we do not have to on our own strength. The Lamb has already done it for us. That is what makes Him worthy. We do not exhibit the marks of the Lamb so that we might earn His favor. We exhibit the marks of the Lamb because we belong to Him. And the longer that we follow Him, the more we become like Him. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we are children of the Lord. We are the Lamb's lambs. Shouldn't the world be able to tell? Shouldn't those who look at us be able to say there's something different about that soul? I wonder what it might be. Honest assessment. Do you bear the marks of the Lamb in your life? Let us unite our hearts in prayer as the ushers come forward, please. Lord Jesus Christ, every one of these every one of these opportunities, every one of these demands, every one of these marks seems so far beyond us. It is hard for us to really imagine and understand that we do not belong to ourselves. It is hard to live a life that is entirely given over to you in sacrifice. It is hard to live a life of complete fidelity, faithfulness to you. And Lord, it is hard for us to follow you sometimes. But God, I speak for many, perhaps most here today, who say we want to be those kinds of persons. We want to be those kinds of persons. And by your grace, we, we pray that you will imprint us with your mark, that we might follow you more and more faithfully every step of our life. In a moment, we're going to give back some of that which belongs to you, we find out today. Would you take it and bless it? For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.